Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is a special edition of GPS, the global public square. Voices from the Obama years. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. And Happy New Year to all of you. Over the last few months, we have had extraordinary access to the White House, to officials, current and former. It was all for a documentary about President Obama's legacy. You might have seen it last week in this slot or previously on CNN. Today, we wanted to bring you more of these amazing interviews, and we wanted to let them breathe. So without further ado, we will start with the president himself, on himself, his habits and his race. You know, the first line of your of your biography, or the capsule of presidents will almost certainly be not something you did, but who you are, right. the first African-American president. Right. And yet, you're half white. You right. were raised by three white people, your mother and your two grandparents. Right. Uh, and an you, Indonesian you can throw and in And an Indonesian. <laughs> are you comfortable with this characterization of you? I am, actually. And, and uh, I write about this uh, in my first book. Fairly early on, I, I came to the realization, maybe as, as a young adult, that uh, the essence of the African-American experience is we're a hybrid people. Uh, and be, because the, the, the concept of race in America is not just genetic. Otherwise, the one-drop rule wouldn't have made sense. It, it's, it's cultural. It's uh, this notion of uh, a people uh, who look different than the mainstream, uh, suffering uh, discrimination, uh, and for many decades, terrible oppression, but somehow being able to make out of that uh, a music and a language and a faith and uh, a patriotism and a belief in this project we call America that is unique. And, uh, and so for me to say that I'm African-American doesn't preclude uh, you know, all the values that my mother and my grandparents taught me. Uh, it's entirely consistent with those values. Um, and so I didn't feel as if I had to go around advertising that I was of mixed race because um, I am an African and American and uh, very comfortable with that. There are many polls that show that at the end of your presidency, a majority of Americans think race relations have worsened. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? Well, because we've had some very high profile uh, events that remind us that uh, you know, the tensions around race, uh, the fact of discrimination still exists. And uh, the, the thing that I always 
remind young people of, though, is there has been so much progress that you're surprised when you see discrimination. Thirty years ago, it wasn't a surprise. that The idea that there might be racial bias in policing or criminal justice reform, well, the average African American would have said, of course, <laughs> that, that's not, nothing new. Uh, the fact that young African Americans today feel pain and shock about this uh, is an indication of the degree to which we've moved the needle where we see it and we don't like it. Uh, and that's progress. So, so my view has always been that, uh, you know, something Dr. King said uh, during the course of the Civil Rights Movement when he was being told that all this agitation down south uh, was causing terrible uh, racial conflict, he said, no, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Uh, you know, when, when those folks were marching across uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you could argue that race relations were worse. But in fact, race relations had improved to the point where not only could African Americans mobilize to march across that bridge, but when the TV cameras showed it, the entire country's conscience was awakened in a way that in prior years it might not have been. Do you think that some of the animus toward against you has been racial? And if, and if the answer is yes, it must enrage you. You know, I, I think that what you've seen, somebody characterized this, I think, quite well, that um, conservative ideology exists independent of racial prejudice. Uh, there are people who dislike me because they think I'm a liberal, because they think that I represent uh, an expansion of federal power, and they're all about states' rights. Uh, they uh, worry about um, high taxes, and they'd be just as mad if a white president they thought was uh, somehow encroaching on their liberty when it comes to guns, right? So, so there are a whole series of issues why people would be upset uh, regardless of my race. Uh, I think there's no doubt that the way uh, the, con the conservative movement has evolved inside the Republican Party over the last several decades, that those non-racial ideological objections have uh, interacted with you know, a, a long-term set of concerns about um, people who are different, whether it's African Americans or immigrants or Muslims. Um, I think there's a reason why uh, you know, attitudes about my presidency among whites in northern states are very different from whites in southern states. So you know, are, are there folks who, whose primary concern about me has been that I seem foreign, the other? Uh, are, are those who champion the birther movement, <laughs> you know, feeding off of uh, bias? Absolutely. Um, you know, on the other hand, there are folks who were also excited and probably voted for me because they were excited about an African-American president and might have been more critical of me if I hadn't been, uh, certainly within the African-American community. 
Um, and I, I think it is important just to, to recognize that you know, I did get elected with the majority of the vote twice. Uh, and that gives you a sense of the degree to which uh, the overwhelming majority of, uh, of the American people are fair-minded and judge me on the merits and not uh, on the basis of race. And, uh, and that's probably why I don't get enraged. Uh, you know, there, there are times where I might get a little irritated, but I try to keep it to myself. Next on GPS, the president on the discipline it requires to win the Oval Office and to hold on to it. You know, you have this famous calm, this equanimity. Um, and I just wonder, underneath it, there must be, there must be um, anger, fear. Do you, is this a shield that you have developed? I tell you, if you talk to Michelle or my kids or my best friends, people who know me pretty well, I am genuinely a pretty calm guy. Uh, you, you know, the, uh, there's that uh, Key and Peele skit, skit with uh, Luther, my anger translator. In our fast-changing world, traditions like the White House Correspondents' Dinner are important. Really? What is this dinner? And why am I required to come to it? Right. And he's going off. And, um, that's not... Uh, something that uh, that's going on that I'm suppressing. Uh, most of the time, I, I am optimistic about America. Uh, I am somebody who, uh, I think, instinctively takes the long view on things. I don't get too high, and I don't believe the hype when things are going good, and I don't get too low and believe all the doomsayers uh, when things are going bad. Um, and, you know, some of it may just be, uh, you know, that Hawaiian in me. You know, when you're, when you're born in really nice weather, you got, uh, you got a chance to go on the beach and uh, take a dip in uh, some really nice water. Uh, and the worries, man. Yeah, it washes it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, Another thing people talk about you is the discipline. Mm -hmm. um, there was the story uh, the, uh, about the, uh, your, your late night habits and these precisely seven almonds. And I know you say it's not actually precisely seven. You occasionally have more. Um, there, are people who, there, there, are, there are people who tell me uh, that uh, you know, when you're at a restaurant um, and there's fries there, you will try the fries, but you will try one French fry, which seems almost inhuman. Uh, are, the, are these tall tales, or, or have you tried to, is this a willed uh, character that you are, do you try to be very disciplined? You know, I, I, I think anybody who ends up being president has some discipline, uh, because uh, there are sacrifices along the way to uh, get here. Um, I think anybody who's accomplished big things has discipline. I, you know, the, maybe there are uh, rare geniuses who don't have to apply sweat and tears and 
enormous amounts of time to achieve what they want to achieve. I, don't, I haven't seen them though. You know, Picasso drew a lot to become Picasso. Uh, Miles Davis played a lot of trumpet to play the trumpet the way he did. And Michael Phelps, I assume, swam a lot of laps. So I, I, I don't know anybody who, who, uh, who's made their mark uh, that where it just falls into their lap. I, this is a lesson I, Michelle and I are always teaching our kids. Um, so, uh, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty disciplined guy. I, I think the stories tend to be apocryphal and, and a little exaggerated. Um, you know, I, uh, look, I wasn't very disciplined about smoking for a long time, uh, which, you know, uh, I think when, when young people hear that I was smoking a lot, they just can't believe it. What an idiot. And they're right. Um, I'm, uh, you know, when it comes to eating, I tend to be pretty disciplined. Um, I have certain weak spots. You put nachos and guacamole in front of me, <laughs> I, I, I tend not to be able to refrain. Part of the discipline I've learned here, though, at the White House is because, you know, you got these White House chefs who are outstanding, and the first year I came, they always had pies, and they're the best pies on earth. And they're different flavored pies. There's pecan, and there's you know, cherry and, and huckleberry and and uh, I think I think the first year I was here, um, you know, the Navy doctor said, you know, you're fine, but your 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 cholesterol spiked way up. What do you think happened? <laughs> and I said, oh. So I we we were more disciplined about just having those pies on the weekends because otherwise I'd be I'd be eating them all the time. Coming up inside one of the hardest won political battles of the Obama administration, the historic passing into law of the Affordable Care Act. Why was it so personal for Obama's chief advisor, David Axelrod? Find out when we come back. As a key architect of Obama's 2008 change campaign, David Axelrod worked side by side with Obama from the very start. During Obama's first term, he served as special advisor, front and center, to one of the biggest victories of the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act. For him, it wasn't just politics. It wasn't just business. It was very personal. Listen in. Talk about health care. Do you, do you remember whether he was for the big push up front in the first two years from the start? No, it was an open discussion. I think in his... In his heart, that's what he thought was necessary. He knew that given the economy and uh, the politics of, the, uh, of that moment, that the likelihood that we would have large Democratic majorities uh, in his second two years was very faint. And so if we were going to deal with health care, we were going to have to deal with it in the first couple of years or it probably wouldn't get done. And that was the argument that he made. By summer of 2009, the polling reflected the water that he was taking on as a result of health care. And I went into his office with polling books, and I remember standing in the middle of the Oval Office, and he listened respectfully. And when he was done, he said, yeah, but I just got back from Green Bay, and I talked to a young woman, 36 years old. She has two kids, a husband. They both have jobs. They have insurance. But she has stage four breast cancer, and now she's worried that she's going to hit her lifetime caps and leave her family 
uh, bankrupt. And he said, that's not the country we believe in, so let's just keep fighting. And then a few weeks later, there was a discussion in the Oval Office, and someone suggested that perhaps we'd have to scale back or throw the towel in on this. And he turned to uh, Phil Shalero, his legislative director, and said, Phil, um, what do you think the chances of passing this uh, law? And Phil said, well, it depends how lucky you feel, Mr. President, which is not necessarily what you want to hear if you're the president. And the president just smiled and said, Phil, I'm a black guy named Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm president of the United States. He said, I feel lucky every day. Do you remember the night when it had passed? In the oh, my, yes. Uh, because this was an emotional thing for me. Uh, even though I was giving him political advice, I also am a parent of a child with a chronic illness. And uh, uh, she has. Uh, she started having seizures when she was seven months old, and uh, they told us it would pass. Um, and a month later, uh, she was released from the hospital and still having ten seizures a day. We had to uh, try all kinds of different medications. My insurance didn't cover those medications. I couldn't switch insurance because she had a pre-existing condition. And I was going broke. I was a young reporter. I didn't have $1,000 a month, which is what her medications cost. So I knew uh, why we needed reform, even if I knew how hard it would be. And when the votes came in... The bill is passed. We were all gathered in the Roosevelt Room, the president, the vice president, everybody worked on this issue. And I, my office was right next to his. And I got up and I went into my office and I sobbed. And I didn't even know why at first I was so overcome. And then I realized it was because I knew that there were families out there who wouldn't have to go through the terror that my family did, worrying that taking care of their child would leave them bankrupt. And I went and I found him and I thanked him on behalf of all those families. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, that's why we do the work. And I'll always remember that moment because to me it, certain, it crystallized what politics at its best is all about. When you look at it, it's kind of almost unbelievable. This guy was a state senator in Illinois. Yeah. And four years, five years later, he's, uh, yeah. he's the pre president of the United States. What is it that you think um, propelled that meteoric rise? Well, look, part of success at this level is luck. Uh, the man meets the times. Barack Obama was the right person for a time when Americans were looking for a distinctly different direction uh, from the Bush years, and he represented the sharpest departure in terms of style, approach. Uh, so that, that was one reason he got elected president. But the other is he has a set of qualities that marked him for leadership. He's powerfully uh, intelligent and thoughtful and deliberative. Um, he's thought about these issues from a very early age. And I think the greatest virtue that Barack Obama had brought to all of this was uh, an ability to think long term and an understanding that um, you can't just ask the first question about a policy decision. You have to ask the second question and the third question. If we do this, then what? He, he's a long term thinker. My, my my friend David Pluff once said that Barack Obama is a chess player in a, in a town full of checkers players. And I think that that's true. So he had um, an extraordinary array of qualities that marked him for leadership uh, and advanced him faster than many, most people in American history. Um, when you think of him, you've, you know him um, and you've worked with him and you've seen him in up, the ups and downs. Uh, and as somebody I would ask you, who is this guy? What would your answer be? 
I think that he is a, um, a deeply moral person, a person who sees his role as contributing to the greater good. Um, that's his calling, views politics as a calling, not is as he a very business. Ambitious? I think he's ambitious in the way anybody has to be to seek the most powerful office on the planet, but his ambitions run less to his own uh, self-aggrandizement, uh, certainly to his own pecuniary interest, than it does to his, uh, will, his desire to make the biggest difference he can. You know, in the summer of 2011, I went to see him right after the uh, controversy over the debt ceiling. And it was probably the nadir of his eight years in the White House. His polling numbers were as bad as they've ever been. He was about to embark on a re-election campaign. Many people were doubting he could win. And we sat out. Uh, we went down to the basketball court at the White House and we were shooting some baskets. And we sat down on a bench. And I said, do you ever regret having made this decision to run? And he looked at me with astonishment. And he said, why would you even ask that? And I said, it seems pretty brutal right now. And he said, you know what, if you're going to do public service, do it at the highest level you can do it, where you can have the greatest impact. And he said, I I'm happy every day to have that chance. And he was very sincere about that. That's, that's who he is. He's a public servant, and he takes public service very seriously. Coming up in Crisis Opportunity, President Obama's first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, tells us about trying to turn political lemons into lemonade while working at the White House. Just days after his 2008 victory, then-President-elect Obama made his first major political appointment. His chief of staff will be his fellow Chicagoan, now mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Of Emanuel, Obama said, no one I know is better at getting things done. And there was, of course, a lot to get done. When I sat down with Emmanuel, we began by discussing the red-hot issues Obama faced on day one. You guys come into the White House and you discover that the world economy is collapsing. Um, <laughs> describe for me, was, it, was there a sense of, uh, oh my God, what have we gotten into? What, how are we going to get out? a few other averages between oh, my, and God. <laughs> uh, no, I think that, uh, well, I, you know, the way I look at this, and I try to describe this to people, any one of the four crises that he was handling were the definite, where one of them was the definition of another president's term. What were the four crises? Well, think about this. Jimmy Carter handled Chrysler. We were handling the auto industry. George Herbert Walker Bush was handling the savings loan. We were handling the financial industry, including insurance. I mean, so... Savings alone was a, a major crisis of a segment of the financial industry. The entire financial industry clamped up under uh, prior to President Obama, but that's what he walked into. When President Carter was working through Chrysler, it was a single part of the auto industry. Basically, we were discussing whether GM and Chrysler would ever exist, and all the suppliers. The recession that became the Great Recession, or not, was gr the word great was added to it because everybody knew there was a period of time for three or four months that we were butting up against something far worse than just a severe recession. Any one of those individually would define another president's entire term and tenure. And we were dealing with all of them, let alone the longest war in American history and two foreign engagements. So you famously said, uh, never let a, a, a crisis go to waste. 
What did you mean by that? Never let a crisis go to waste. It's the opportunity to do things you never thought you could do. So the second part is, which gets usually uh, clipped off. What I meant by that is, uh, while crises usually are associated with, oh my God, you know, what are we going to do? But they're also opportunities. They're not just challenges. And the question is, can you navigate it where that crisis becomes the opportunity to do things rather than just a challenge of how to solve a problem? The auto industry, in my view, is a perfect example. We talked about the cars. We talked about labor costs. We had talked about suppliers. We talked about dealers. We had talked about all these things, but never once in a collective way were all the problems at one fell swoop dealt with. But they've been postponed, delayed to the point that the auto industry, even at producing 17 million cars, was unprofitable. By the time we were done with the reorganization and the lifeline of resources, at 9 million cars a year, the auto industry in the United States is profitable. Today they're selling 15, 16 million. And it wasn't dependent on these big SUVs to make a, a buck. That's because everybody had it, if everybody gave a little, nobody had to give everything. And it became a crisis that became the opportunity to do the things you never thought were possible and made impossible. There are people who think that if Obama had been more of a schmoozer, um, that, you know, maybe that people like you were too partisan, that somehow he needed to reach out. You don't think that? Yeah, we're just one golf game away from singing Kumbaya. Exactly. Give me a break. They had a political strategy. And the reason I say that is Mitch McConnell, on the day he gets inaugurated, says what his strategy is. He enunciated, it's in the paper. We're going to do everything we can to stop him. And everybody else since then thinks if you just knew how to be a better golfer with everybody else, everybody would get along. It's not, they told you the strategy. It's not like you have to interpret it. They're overt about it. Okay, now could the president on the margins done the things that people talk about? Yes, but that was not gonna change people's fundamental political calculus, not one iota. Now I will say, I say this and I wanna go back because it's going to make people uncomfortable, but I'll be very clear. In 2008, in September, the financial system collapses. George Bush calls Nancy Pelosi. Now, you're two months away from a presidential election, a third of the Senate, and the entire House of Representatives. Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid's reaction wasn't, Mr. President, this is your crisis. Go figure it out with your party. We sat at the table, worked through the uh, issues, and we voted to get TARP it created under George Bush with two months to go before the presidential when there was a major crisis in the financial sector. Barack Obama becomes president two months later, and there's a crisis in the financial sector, the economy as a whole, in the auto industry. And the Republicans answered when it came to America, said, go pound dirt, this is your problem, go fix it yourself. There is a very, and people don't like to hear it, but the Republican uh, legislative uh, leaders' reaction to the national crisis was party above country. When there was a crisis under George Bush with two months to go before an election, and it was a crisis of uh, financial stability, we put country in front of party. Up next, a tragic day for America and the White House. Longtime Obama friend and advisor Valerie Jarrett talks about the shootings in Newtown and Obama's determined gun control fight. Few people know Barack Obama as well as Valerie Jarrett. She's been his senior advisor for the past eight years, but they have been close friends for over two decades. How did they come together? Listen in. 
when you knew him as a young man, what in him do you think has stayed uh, the qualities and has made him a successful president? What's interesting, the First Lady said about him once that being president doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. And the young man that I met 25 years ago, I think was, I call him an old soul. He was very grounded. He was very clear about a purpose for public service. Wasn't sure at that point how it would manifest itself, but was trying to figure out how can I do good? And he had this kind of very focused, long view, and that has stayed the same. And the other thing I'd say that's been constant throughout is his temperament. He's steady, he's calm, his highs are not too high, his lows are not too low. He's able to absorb a lot of kind of anxiety that comes inevitably your way when you're in a position of leadership, but not let it eat away at him, but not lose his empathy either. And so those are the kind of unusual qualities that go together that I recognized so long ago, and I think they've served him well in this office. You talked often about his cool, his discipline, the ability to focus on the long term. Where do you think that comes from? I think some of it he would attribute to Hawaii. It's kind of a laid-back place. Um, I think some of it is discipline and not losing focus because, it, because you know that if you lose focus, you're not going to be able to get as much done. So it's a combination of both just how you're born and the qualities that you have. Um, the fact that he was well-loved as a child and nurtured, I think, gives you both feet planted on the ground. The fact that he takes issues seriously, but he doesn't take it himself that seriously and that you can tease him and, uh, and get away with it. The fact that he is well-loved now by his amazing wife and these two incredible children that they've raised together, all of that, I think, acts as an anchor and a buffer that allows him to be temperamentally where he is. Um, he's also um, played the role of, of uh, head of state and president, and Michelle has as, uh, as first lady, um, with a great deal of dignity. Was that, is there a conscious effort to do that because it is the first African-American couple in the White House? Do they think in those kind of historic terms about their role? I think they behave in a dignified way because they're dignified. I think part of the magic for why they're so appealing is, is that they are who they are. Early on, we'd have meetings and people would say to me, well, what did he really think? And I'd say, well, what did he say? And then they'd say what he said. And I said, well, that's, he kind of is what he is. And that's the same for both of them. So I think that um, they behave as the people who they are. What you see in public is the same thing I see in private. Um, do they feel responsibility because they're historic figures? Yes, they do. But I don't think that it has made them be different than who they are. The president prides himself on the fact that his administration hasn't had a scandal and that he hasn't done anything to embarrass himself. But that's not because um, he's being someone other than who he is. That's because that's who he is. That's who they are. And I think that's what really resonates with the American people. Do you remember Newtown, the day and, and the president's I reaction? Do. I certainly do. How, I remember how? being in the Oval Office when he um, was delivered a note that said the number of people who perished, and he said 20 children, and I thought he said two. And I said, two? Like, that's a terrible thing? He said, no, I said 20. And I just remember neither my brain nor my heart could process that. And it was just every parent's nightmare, of course. And 
I traveled with the president to Newtown and we ended up having to drive about an hour and 10 minutes because it was a cloudy day and he couldn't take a helicopter. And he read his speech that had been prepared for him in the car. And I remember watching him read it and then he put it on the, uh, on the um, other chair in the car and he pulled out a yellow pad and a pen and he started writing from scratch. And I remember being conscious of my breathing because I didn't want to disturb him in any way. And he wrote solidly for an hour and 10 minutes. And he walked in and he handed his handwritten notes to one of the folks in his speech writing office. And he said, type this up and this is what I'll give. And it was one of his best speeches because it was all heart. And, and he spoke not just as president, but as a, as a parent. And you know, what, what can we do to end, uh, end this horrible, horrible characteristic of our country? I mean, it doesn't make sense that we are the only country with this kind of uh, gun violence that's developed in the world. And so why would we want that to continue? What do you say to people who are not very political, who, who might be watching this, who say, all I know is he failed at, at, at doing something about guns, that he's the president, there should, there should have been some way. What's your response? Well, believe me, there's no one who carries that weight more than he does. There's no one who's been to more memorial services and comforted more families in the course of his seven plus years in office than the president. And he knows that's a big part of his job, the consoler in chief. And each time he looks at a family who look at him going, you know, why couldn't we have done more? Believe me, that's like a poker um, in his stomach. And so it eats away at him. But ultimately, he can't do this alone. And what he's been saying recently since we were unable to get legislation through is, look, it's going to be up to the American people to care as much about this issue as he does. And when they do, and when they begin to vote along the lines of this one issue, that's when you're going to see change because the people who represent them will be held accountable. And so, yes, he wishes he could have done more. He's certainly done everything he can and for the, until his last day in he will be challenging his team to continue to work on this. But I think he also recognizes that the politics right now um, on the Hill are such that the strongest interest group uh, there on guns is the NRA, not the American people. Next up, a final look at President Obama, the man. I will talk to his Secretary of State, John Kerry, and his National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, about the president's personal relationships with leaders around the world his crisis management skills, and what he's really like behind closed doors. I traveled to Washington, D.C. in November to interview Secretary of State John Kerry. In his four years working with President Obama, they have had their fair share of crises to confront. So what is the president like under pressure? You've seen a lot of presidents. What are the qualities that distinguish uh, President Obama in handling a crisis? Uh, what, what, what do you think of when you, when you think of how he handles foreign, foreign policy, and particularly crises? Well, I think the president uh, approaches all of these choices that come with any crisis with a terrific sense of calm, of, of just direction. He's uh, a tough questioner. He gets at the nub of what the stakes may be, but also what all the downstream implications may be, things others may not have uh, thought through completely. And I found him to be a very, very uh, thoughtful, uh, tough questioner of the people around him who are supposed to be making, you know, coming up with policy suggestions. 
I also find him, uh, you know, a strong decider. I mean, he, uh, you know, he will make up his mind. It may not be what everybody suggested. It may be different from what the current conventional wisdom is, but he has a confidence in it, which is striking. And I think he, he does his thing. It doesn't mean that I or any other advisor will agree 100% with every piece of it, but he's the president and that's the job he has. And we all, everybody respects that. So I'm, I've always been impressed by his willingness to take the time to dig in and really grapple with uh, the ups and downs and back and forth and sideways of every single issue he's presented. One of the most difficult decisions the president grappled with was whether to send Navy SEALs into Abbottabad, Pakistan in pursuit of Osama bin Laden. I spoke with former Defense Secretary and CIA Director Leon Panetta about the days and weeks leading up to May 2011. Is there an anecdote that you can recall that to you best exemplifies the, the character of Barack Obama? I, I think that for me personally, there, there really was no, no greater moment uh, than the moment when the president had to make the decision uh, as to whether or not we do the operation to go after uh, bin Laden. We had, over a period of time, uh, presented him with the, the intelligence that we had uh, on the compound, uh, on uh, uh, the various uh, elements that indicated that uh, bin Laden might be located there. But we never had 100% identity that bin Laden was there. Uh, and even intelligence people had different, uh, uh, you know, different gradings about whether or not we should or should not conduct that operation. When we finally decided that it was important to conduct the operation, and we went to the NSC, uh, you know, the president listened to uh, Admiral McRaven uh, and uh, what the operation would look like uh, if we did this commando raid on this compound. Uh, he listened very carefully and, and raised questions. But then he kind of looked around the room in the NSC and said, what do each of you think? And we went around that room. Uh, and I'd have to say that probably a majority of people around that table uh, thought it was too risky, and for good reasons. Uh, I'm not, I don't even question uh, the fact that uh, they were raising concerns about the risks involved. There were risks involved. But at the same time, uh, when the president asked me, I said, Mr. President, I have an old formula I used when I was in the Congress, which is to pretend I ask the average citizen in my district, if you knew what I knew, what would you do? And I said, if the average citizen knew we had the best intelligence on the location of bin Laden since Tora Bora, uh, I think they would say we have to go. And I think you have to go. And I have tremendous confidence in the ability of the SEALs to conduct this operation. The president did not make a decision at that point. Uh, he said thank you to everybody. Uh, and then that evening, uh, considered 
all of the arguments that were made. And it was the next morning that I got a call and said that the president had decided that the operation was a go. I think that process of thoughtfully considering all of those arguments, but then making a very risky decision that you have to make as president of the United States, to make that decision and to say go, uh, tells me that deep down that uh, the president had the courage of his conviction to do what he thought was necessary. I also sat down with National Security Advisor Susan Rice, who has traveled with the president on more than two dozen international trips since taking the post in 2013. I asked her about criticism about the president's personal relationship with foreign leaders. Listen in. People say he doesn't develop strong enough human relations, that foreign leaders don't warm to him, that he's too aloof, he's, he's the spark of decision-making. That is not my experience. Uh, I, but I have spent a lot of time with him. I've seen his profoundly raucous sense of humor. I've seen uh, his gentleness and kindness to uh, people he, he's worked closely with and people he's never met. Um, but let me just give you one uh, anecdote. We were just in Germany, um, and the foreign leader with whom the president has spent the most years and through the perhaps the most challenging circumstances working with has been Chancellor Merkel uh, of Germany. And uh, we had a, an extremely warm uh, two-day visit where she and he had a three-hour one-on-one dinner uh, where they spent a great deal of time uh, talking through past, present, and future. And then probably one of the images that I'll never forget, they actually quite honestly got me choked up. Um, as we were driving away from the chancellery uh, saying goodbye, Chancellor Merkel had already said goodbye to the president and they had embraced and, and she was standing at the edge of the red carpet. We were in the president's uh, vehicle and looked over at her and you could just see on her face uh, a degree of sadness and regret and emotion uh, that was quite remarkable. And it was her face saying goodbye to her friend and partner. Um, and I think the, the president felt that very deeply. And I think that's indicative um, of the kind of relationship that he has built up with her and that he's had with others. We hope you've enjoyed this inside look at Barack Obama's presidency. If you haven't yet seen my most recent documentary, The Legacy of Barack Obama, consult your local listings for airtimes or find it on CNN Go. And be sure to keep watching CNN every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern in 2017. We will be talking about America's new president's trials and triumphs every week. Thank you for being part of my program this week and a very happy new year to all of you. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.